the blessing that has again been afforded to each of us to assemble and to gather this evening as we appreciate the comfort and the easiness with which this particular location affords that meeting. So many instances and places throughout the centuries have been far more troubled and yet we have the comfort and the easiness with which we can consider for a few moments studying the Word of God, singing these lovely hymns of praise and adoration to His name, being challenged and led by the precious teachings. It is, in fact, a great honor, and I know we're each thankful for that. Brother Harold has selected, you may have noticed, some songs like the Paradise Valley that we just sang together, and the singing, in fact, sounds so encouraging. I'm sure each of us can appreciate that gift of song and the music that we see in the pages of the Word of God. This evening, as we come to a lesson, we have the opportunity to consider a lesson that I've entitled Contrasting Wisdom. We concluded last Lord's Day evening a series of lessons on the book of 1 Samuel. Through 31 chapters of that book, we in fact started in June, and I think Harold noted a moment ago that we completed that now on the last Sunday in September. That series of studies hopefully was encouraging to each of us. But tonight, as we turn to a somewhat different consideration, it is, as you may have noted, in the book of James that will turn our attention primarily, verses 13 to 18 of James chapter 3. In the title, you'll notice that wisdom will be a central feature of the lesson this evening, and some introductory thoughts might well be appropriate to turn our attention toward that end. In Jeremiah 17, verse 7, that noble writer of the ancient era simply said, "'Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord.'" and whose hope the Lord is. That is a clarion call throughout all ages and all times. How blessed it is to be those that trust in the Lord. Even when it isn't popular and even when it isn't encouraged by those around us, it is still a blessed thing to place confidence and trust in the one who does admire it and who does, in fact, adore it. It is with those in mind. Consider those final thoughts on that slide, please. Wisdom. I suppose that surely no thinking person would question the importance and the value of wisdom. Even there are those in the world that would lift high the importance of it, and yet you and I who are believers in the Word of God surely even recognize it more acutely than they would. Wisdom. In Proverbs 23, verse number 23, we notice there we're told to buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. We are told that if at all possible and by all means that would be necessary to acquire wisdom, to acquire understanding, even if it were to cost us everything else, it would be worth it if we were to obtain wisdom. You'll also notice in Proverbs 4 verses 5, 6, and 7, noting only verse number 7, there it reminds us these interesting words. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. I'm sure that we each remember and recollect that that book of Proverbs is a very special book in the sense that it presents large numbers of very short sayings, sayings that get to the point, sayings that in fact are sometimes described as pithy, but all the while truth is embedded in them. You may have noticed that two of those passages that we've just noted come from the wisest one who in the flesh was ever blessed to live. Solomon had asked wisdom from the Lord. In 1 Kings, the third chapter, when God allowed him the opportunity to ask anything that you want, 
Solomon had the encouragement and he had the nerve to ask for understanding and wisdom. And God blessed him with that, with that very thing. No wonder as we give thought to that matter of wisdom, I would ask you for a moment tonight to turn your attention to the closest New Testament book that comes to the same structure as the book of Proverbs. It's the book of James. James has often been called the New Testament book of Proverbs. It has only five chapters, and much of the teaching found in it is in short, direct, straightforward statements. There aren't long discourses. There aren't long sermons. It's just very short and to the point. Statements like these. We're told in James 1.27, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. We're told also in James 1 verse 8 that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. James 2.17, faith without works is dead, being alone. James 2.26, we are quickly reminded that that same discussion of faith and works reaches this crescendo, this pinnacle. For as the body without the, word, without the spirit is dead, even so faith without works is dead. In James chapter 3, the practical character of this book is seen even as it touches the tongue. Quite often we're aware that there is not supposed to be any profanity coming out of my tongue, any vulgarity, but one could ask, so if that's not what I am supposed to speak, what am I supposed to speak? And the book of James highlights that thought. Not only leaving out the negative, but implementing the positive usage of our speech and language. In James chapter 4, your life and mine is like a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. James 4.13. Maybe the last verse of that chapter would be a good way to move into the next chapter as well. James 4 verse 17. Therefore him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. In the last chapter we will remember, confess your faults one to another. And pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You already get a sense and a feeling with me about the character and the nature of this book of James. And with that, I would invite us to cast the spotlight for the next few moments this evening on the subject of wisdom as it's presented in James and, of course, expansively using other passages to aid us in understanding what is set forth in this particular section of Scripture. Verse number 13 again reads, James chapter 3, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? You'll notice that the inspired writer opens this verse with a question. Questions are one of God's favorite teaching tools. Some who have taken the liberty to count it have told us there are approximately 2,000 questions in the Bible. That's a lot of questions. It's easy to see then that one of God's favorite methods of instruction, one of His favorite presentations of truth is by the asking of a pertinent and well-rounded question. Here we notice, who is a wise man? Our world has many answers to that. There are some who might be described as wise based on any number of criteria, based on any number of approaches, and based on any possible number of avenues of life. And yet, the Word of God has within it that same question. Who, I'd like to know, is a wise man? Thankfully, the God of heaven has given us an answer. 
provided us in no uncertain terms the thoroughness and greatness of the reaction. Verse 13 goes on to say, Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. It is the case that for the next few moments tonight, I would invite us to take a journey. A journey in which we will cast the spotlight time and again on the subject of wisdom, and we time and again will ask, so who is a wise man? As we allow God to speak that, without any difficulty, I think we can imagine what one of the final matters of the lesson will be. In fact, we might as well even note it now and then build up to it as time affords us this evening. So, are you and I wise people? Am I, Randy Bybee, wise or not, based on the definitive nature of the Bible's description? And are you wise based on the same criteria? If we aren't, as we can well imagine, change needs to be made at once. Change needs to be made almost immediately. In fact, ere this night comes to a close. Because to be on the dark side of wisdom is not the place to be. As you can see, wisdom is that art in which a person shows good conduct in accordance to both meekness and understanding. That's according to verse 13 that we just read a moment ago. That degree of wisdom leads us to appreciate very highly the following observation. It has within it this thought of showing good deeds. Apparently, based on this particular passage, we can easily see that just a mental aspect of wisdom is not sufficient. Just knowing some body of information is not enough. Here, James very clearly said, Who is a wise man? Let him show out of a good conversation. The details, the intricacies, the presentation, the influence, and the example of this individual's life should match both in meekness and understanding toward the foundation upon which it's based. We will have to look for the verses that follow to appreciate the thoroughness of the foundation. But it's certainly fair to say that wisdom apparently accords with evidence. Can others see your life and mine and testify based on the foundation of the Word of God that indeed wisdom is to be appreciated? If that's not true, then there isn't sufficient wisdom in your life or in mine. As you can well tell near the bottom of that slide, we might give quick appreciation to a passage in Luke the 12th chapter in which this avenue is seen and it presents such a dramatic contrast. You might remember the lesson was entitled Contrasting Wisdom. In Luke the 12th chapter, the Lord spoke a parable. And beginning in verse 15, we recall it began with, in fact, the catch to it. In many of the parables the Lord taught, you might remember that the punchline, if you please, comes at the end. This one comes at the beginning. The very first statement out of the Lord's mouth in Luke 15, Luke 12, verse 15, was this. He said, Beware of covetousness. And then He said, Take heed, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And immediately we have a dramatic and powerful conclusion. In that day, it was so tempting to judge an individual's success, his wisdom, his knowledge based on what has he acquired, what possessions are his, what is his standing in the community. Jesus said, no, 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 no. A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. 
And throughout the course of the lesson tonight, that thought will become abundantly clear even based on a number of statutes and passages. The Lord went on then to relate this episode. There was a man whose crops brought forth so abundantly, in fact so plentifully that his barns were unable to hold the store of what had been harvested. His idea then was this, What am I to do? I'll pull down my barns and build wigger ones. I will then store away all my goods. And I'll say to myself, Soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry, for thou hast many goods laid up for many years. It was then that God replied and said, You are fool. This night thy soul shall be required of thee, and then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? We can appreciate then, can we not, that the world will look upon that man's initial reaction as positive and very wise. Would it not be a good thing to store up what my crops have yielded and to thus make a nice security blanket, retirement blanket if you please, throughout the years and thus say to my soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. You've worked hard, you've labored much, you've acquired a great deal, and the fruits of your labor have borne a great deal as well, take thine ease. We notice, though, that God, in fact, said, Thou fool. You'll notice that what men called wisdom, God said was foolish. Contrasting wisdom. As you reflect on James' teachings concerning that point, it isn't too shocking that also there is a dramatic contrast to be seen. First of all, you'll notice in this passage that there is a wisdom that's not from above. Obviously, its source is beneath. Its source is the devil. Its source is a far lesser power than the God of heaven. Back in James chapter 3, it says, verse number 14. The first word of verse 14 is the word but. In the same way that verse 13 had begun a description and a discussion of those that are wise, now we find the inspired writer inserting this description of those that are not wise. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. We have at this initial condition a description of this which is not wise from a godly standpoint. You'll notice with me that it involves bitter envying. And some translations use the word jealousy in place of envying. And furthermore, it makes note of strife in your hearts. We mentioned in passing at one part in the lesson this morning about the kind of things that sin has brought about in our society and even in individuals. And one of those things we noted was such things as jealousy and envy, such things as leading individuals to no longer be able to dwell in harmony. You'll notice this comes not from the wisdom of above. Consider with me some of these appreciations. This wisdom we're quickly told, as verse 15 describes it. This wisdom descendeth not from above. Thankfully, the inspired writer concludes like this. It's earthly. It has as its basic thrust that which is of the earth. It's carnal, it's mundane. It is focused upon the matters here before us. Secondly, we notice it's sensual. Isn't that a very telling verb, or rather a telling adjective? It describes that which plays upon the passions of the physical man. It attaches to and seeks to please that which are the basic passions within us. 
Be they things that are harmful. Be they things that are unwholesome. Be they things that are wicked. There's much sensuality in our world, isn't there? We will recognize many activities that play upon it. Things like dancing. Things like other kinds of activities that ultimately emanate in sexuality that's unscriptural. All the while... We note the sensual activity and might we be quick to say that quite often things play into that as it relates to the way we dress. If our dress is inappropriate, if we display too much, we are playing upon the sensual thoughts of others and we in fact are even exciting them in ways that are improper. The sensuality is also perhaps seen lastly in that very last word. You may notice that as Jonathan read that a moment ago, in the, New, in the New King James translation, it uses the word demonic. The older King James, as you'll notice in my reading a moment ago, uses the word devilish, reminding us clearly that the source, the thrust, and the focus is all upon that which is of the devil. This kind of wisdom, then, that's not from above, comes of the devil himself. It is of Satan. He seeks to encourage it. He seeks to, in fact... Make sure that it's what is pursued. When you think with me about the nature of that wisdom, you'll notice in the verse that we just highlighted briefly a moment ago, verse 14, it involves envy and jealousy. How often have you seen jealousy in the lives of others? It makes the workplace a disaster, it makes a sports team a disaster. It makes any kind of organization with a particular mission and goal in mind, it usually leads it to unproductivity. It leads it to nonsense. And yet it all comes from the wisdom that's from beneath. You'll also notice that same verse, verse 14 says, strife, quarreling, bickering, these kinds of discussions in which it leads to almost verbal character of abuse, all of that comes from beneath. It does not come from a wisdom that, de de that develops from heaven. It is, is it any wonder then that around us when we see folks behave this way, sometimes in the political realm, sometimes in work realm, sometimes in other realms at school, it is a shame. Thankfully, there haven't been too many times through the years that I have seen a committee meeting or otherwise disintegrate to this kind of behavior but beneath the surface it's not hard to at all to miss it after after all we often see after meetings are over after discussions take place when one is away from the nature of what took place then someone states about the character of someone else or they state something that makes you think that they really are envious or they're jealous at that point it's easy to conclude that committee likely will not get much more done. It's likely the case that not much more will be accomplished because there will be too much infighting one with another rather than accomplishing the mission of the committee. Doesn't it remind us a little bit of Acts 23? On that occasion, as Paul stood before this group, the Sanhedrin court as well as others, we recall that this particular court was one where there was a division amongst the members of the court. Some of them were Pharisees, some of them were Sadducees, and they did not get along. Paul, being the brilliant man that he was, as he stood before them supposedly to be tried by them, he said, touching the subject of the resurrection of the dead, I am a Pharisee. 
immediately. They began to discuss and bicker and fight among themselves, forgot all about Paul even being there. Here he was supposedly on trial by them, and yet they reduced the opportunity before them to hear perhaps the greatest preacher this side of Christ the world has ever known, and they wasted the opportunity. Isn't it sad and tragic? You'll notice that bitter envying and strife is the order of the day when it comes to this wisdom that's from beneath. As you can see, some of the final thoughts on that slide. There are other ways in which this kind of wisdom is described very graphically. Envy is the rottenness of the bones, Proverbs 14, verse 30. Envy is called the rottenness of the bones, R-O-T-T-E-N-N-E-S-S, rottenness. Solomon understood even in that ancient day, didn't he, about how that this kind of wisdom was so tragic, so terrible. Finally, you'll appreciate that Galatians 5 verse 20 does highlight for us that strife is one of those things that will keep an individual out of heaven. Indeed, amongst those works of the flesh, and we remember many things like fornication and adultery and murder and witchcraft, but included in that list is strife. We must be very careful then to not strive in ways that would be outside the boundary of the book of God. As you can see, though, contrasted to that is a wisdom that is from above. I'm sure we each could recognize this kind of wisdom is something for which we should yearn. It is something which we must pursue. And for that reason, let's devote a more intensive study of this kind of wisdom for the remainder of the lesson tonight. We might well begin by noting this wisdom is guided by the marvelous revelation of the book of God. In fact, this would be an appropriate time to stop and ask ourselves the following question. I'd like to use Jeremiah chapter 9 as the thrust for the following concept. If you'd like to turn to that location with me, we'll be reading two verses from Jeremiah chapter, 23, Jeremiah chapter number 9, beginning in verse 23. In verses 23 and 24 of this particular chapter, we have the following statement of questions. First of all, you might appreciate with me the setting in which this is found. Judah was headed toward captivity. She was idolatrous and sinful. She had forgotten the God that made her and that in fact blessed her so beautifully. Two chapters earlier in Jeremiah 7, verses 23 to 28, God has specifically said, This is a nation that obeyeth not God. In the midst of this discussion, we have this conclusion. Given the way it touches to wisdom, please appreciate it with me. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in, in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, saith the Lord. God, in essence, in verse 23 said, There are three avenues which we might quickly and briefly consider. First, he said, that wise man, the one who is smart, he's recognized by his peers as knowledgeable. He seems to have reputation and influence. Don't let that man glory in his personal knowledge and wisdom. 
Second, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. There are those that are physically strong. They are muscular. They are well built, if you please. God says, don't let that man glory in that, physic, in that physique, in that physical aspect to his being. Thirdly, let not the rich man glory in his riches. Here were three in which the world might be quick to say, these would be good avenues in which to glory. These would be good avenues in which to have appreciation of wisdom. This smart man, this rich man, this man that has been blessed in other avenues and ways in physical physique... God says, don't you glory in that. Well, what then, God, should we glory in? Verse 24, But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me that I am the Lord. There are individuals upon this earth who perhaps didn't graduate the eighth grade, and yet, by years of consideration and study of this book, they are spiritual geniuses. Because they know the God of heaven, they glory in His Word, and they appreciate the truth. And there are those with half a dozen PhDs after their name. And because they know not this book, they simply are dumb. They do not know the thing in which one is to be honored. They do not know the thing in which God said they ought to glory. In our world, there are many who, in fact, are in a circumstance like that latter, aren't there? There are many times that one can appreciate as they speak. They can use $5 words. They can make strong arguments that sound so impressive in many ways, but yet the very matter is like Swiss cheese. It's full of spiritual holes. And it's a tragedy, isn't it? God said, the man that glories, let him glory in this that he knows me. Do you and I know the Lord? Do we know the Lord? In 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 7 through 9, we have this penalty if we don't, do not know Him. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not the Lord. Know not God. So those that do not know Him are thus lined up for an incredibly severe penalty. Jeremiah stated it well, didn't he? There is one of the key elements in wisdom. Do you and I know the book? Are we acquainted with its teachings? Are we thoroughly equipped to share it with others? But sanctify the Lord God always in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that's within you with meekness and with fear. 1 Peter 3.15 We notice that we're off to a strong and resounding beginning as we discuss this wisdom from above. We now know where it comes from. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. But let us look further. Learning that God is the source perhaps highlights passages such as these. In Proverbs 9, verse number 10, we learn there that wisdom is from above. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I specifically like the way the inspired writer stated that, don't you? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where you start. That's how we ultimately reach to higher and higher degrees and levels of appreciation. The fear of the Lord is where it must begin. We notice immediately that there's then the gigantic mistake. Many trust in their own wisdom, their own understanding. But God has already told Jeremiah, don't, in fact, glory in that. You'll notice something else on that list. 
you'll notice that this kind of wisdom is described back in that text in James chapter 3. You'll appreciate with me that verse number 17 says, This wisdom, this wisdom from above, is first pure. The first element involved in his description is purity. It doesn't have other kinds of unorthodox matters behind it. It doesn't have ulterior motives. It's genuine. It's pure. It's honest. I think all of us appreciate someone like that, don't we? We appreciate working with someone who doesn't have an ulterior motive and are just looking for a chance to take advantage of us. We appreciate someone like that because what they tell you is honest and it's true and you can trust it. Unfortunately, there are too few like that. This purity that you see highlighted here, doesn't it remind us that that word means holy and innocent? Passages that lead us toward that particular directive would be passages like 1 Timothy 5, verse 22. As Paul described the matter of preaching to Timothy, one of the strong elements in it, he said, Timothy, keep thyself pure. Three little words, keep thyself pure. Timothy needed to put that matter to heart. You and I need to do the same. That element in purity is seen next by the peaceable character of this kind of wisdom. The wisdom from above is peaceable, isn't it? The writer James said so. That means it loves peace, it enjoys peace, it strives to be peaceful. Didn't Jesus say amongst the Beatitudes, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. The capability of seeing God, understanding the loveliness that goes with being a peacemaker, that only highlights us this text in 1 Peter 3 verse 11. Didn't Peter write, Follow after things which make for peace. In the human family, we see battle and we see warfare and we see difficulty and we see many things that are not peaceful. We should strive to have peace in our families. We should first of all be individuals who enjoy and love peace and we should want the church to highlight the beauty and prestige of peace. This should be a place where we can come and meet with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and all enjoying the sentiment and the lovely and powerful element of peace. You'll notice beyond peaceableness, we see that gentleness is highlighted. The inspired writer specifically says, Then peaceable, gentle. Gentleness seems to relate in some way to peaceableness, but yet there's a slight difference too, isn't there? This matter of gentleness reminds us of there's a consideration involved. That is to say, considerateness. But there's also the matter of forbearing one another. And our mind no doubt races to Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul there reminds us that we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, forbearing one another in love. We should strive to emulate and imitate that kind of description, shouldn't we? You'll notice the next verse is going to say there is one body and one Spirit, even as you're called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. This degree of gentleness leads us to the next description. It goes on to say, easy to be entreated. Easy to be entreated. Perhaps an explanation might be in order. 
That word literally means willing to yield. I frankly confess that there are times that I'm mistaken. And when I'm showed a more correct way, a better idea, a more perfect consideration, then I, by nature of appreciation, should yield. My stubbornness shouldn't lead me in arrogance and pride to demand my way when another way is better. All of us should understand the reality of that needfulness. Easy to be entreated. Sometimes there is a better idea. And when that better idea comes, we should, out of a desire for the wisdom from above, seek to pursue it. You'll notice this wisdom is without partiality also. We'll return to that one that we skipped in just a moment. But it's so interesting to observe that it's without partiality. That literally means no prejudice or favoritism. We understand the evil which can be wrought by favoritism, don't we? We've seen that in the Word of God. We will recall in the book of Genesis, in fact, there was favoritism shown in the families. Jacob had his favorite. It was Joseph, and the other brothers hated him because of that. But we well remember that that started a generation earlier, didn't it? When it seems that Isaac had his favorite, he preferred Esau to Jacob. However, Rebekah preferred Jacob to Esau. And that favoritism led to a degree of disintegration in that family, and it persisted for generations. We will recall that there are other scenes in our own lives in which that kind of behavior has led to problems. Might we at least comment this? This kind of wisdom from above is full of mercy and good fruits. Partiality and favoritism is not a good fruit. But rather, this kind of wisdom bears marvelous and wonderful fruit. Is there any reason that then James in these particular verses encourages us toward that goal and that end? As we come near the bottom of that slide, we notice that this kind of wisdom is without hypocrisy. It really is genuine. Are you real and are you genuine? Is your faith real and genuine? How about mine? That's a question only you and I individually can answer. I can't answer for you, and you are not able to answer for me. Jesus, while He was here on earth, was able to read the hearts of men, John 2.25. If He were here today and He were able to look you in the eye, could He, in fact, lift up your faith as being able to say, I've not seen such great faith, no, not in Israel. Matthew 8, verses 10 through 12. There was a Gentile, and Jesus said, I haven't seen in Israel the kind of faith I see in him. Could Jesus make that statement about you and me? Or rather, would he be rather ashamed at the shallowness, at the lack of growth and the lack of reliance upon the wisdom from above? It is a challenging question, isn't it? It is with all that in mind we come to a set of verses during the close of that slide. You'll notice in them we read verses like, Luke 3.13, or rather Luke 13.3, in which we're reminded about the needfulness of repentance. Nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. That very verse is based upon the reality of this wisdom from above. It's an admission that I am a sinner and I have been incorrect and I need the cleansing nature of what God offers. That takes courage. It does take bravery. But you'll notice it is based on wisdom from above. 
you'll notice in James 3.13, this very chapter, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation meekness and knowledge with wisdom. Is your life a testimony to the wisdom from above? Or rather, is it a testimony to the wisdom from beneath? If it's the latter, think carefully again about those kinds of things that come out of this wisdom from, a, from beneath. Strife, envy, bitterness, confusion, and every evil work. We so sorely need the wisdom from above and to base our lives and our families upon it and found the church squarely upon that truth of which we read in 1 Timothy 3 verse 15, the pillar and ground of the truth. Tonight, the lesson at this point is yours. The book of James has brought us to this New Testament book of Proverbs, and in it we've been reminded of the highlight needfulness of wisdom. If wisdom from above is not the order of your life tonight, why not make it so? If you have never obeyed initially the gospel invitation, it will take a bit of courage on your part, set the nerves aside for a moment, and realize what would happen if you were to walk down this aisle. You simply would be making note of the fact that you and your current state are lost and undone, but that you know where the solution is to be found. It's found within the salvation offered from the God of heaven. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. If in fact at this point that's the need of your life, why not come forward and let us make note of your belief and repentance and then we will in fact invite you to make a confession that you in fact believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you do so with all your heart. We then will simply, and nothing more, but immerse you in water so that you, being buried with Christ in baptism, can rise to walk in you creature in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. If you have begun that walk with a master, but you have strayed from the pathway of the wisdom from above, and you now are following the wisdom from beneath, at this point the devil is happy with you. He wants you to follow the wisdom of the earth because it's earthly, it's sensual, it's devilish. Why not leave him behind and turn your attention back to the wisdom from above? For this wisdom is peaceable, it's pure, it is without variance and strife, and it is based upon the truth of God. If we could be of help to you tonight in praying for your forgiveness, we too would invite you to come forward, and if those sins have been of a public character, we'd be honored to pray upon your behalf. If we could help you tonight in either of these ways, won't you let it be known, if you would, at once, while together we stand and while we sing.